it tells the story of the dog reading time. You're listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 48 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. It's been a busy couple weeks since the last episode dropped. Uh, I was on the Your Natural Dog podcast to talk about the Dog Health Journal, so I'll make sure to put a link in the show notes if you want to check that out. And then uh, I turned 43 on June 15th, which also made me a three-year breast cancer survivor. And then we celebrated Father's Day. So I've been sharing a lot of photos over on Instagram of my husband to celebrate for Father's Day and to celebrate my birthday. So you might want to go check those out. It's at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores. And coming up in July, I always think of my first dog, Lucy. We adopted her on, I think it was July 10th. We had settled on our house on July 1st, and I I think we brought Lucy home on July 10th. So this July will actually make me a dog mom for the past 18 years. And I feel like I have learned so much and come so far in these past 18 years because I literally knew nothing about having a dog, like nothing at all. And I've learned about having pit bull dogs and about having to advocate for having a pit bull dog and having to talk to legislators and discuss breed specific laws. And I've learned about learning to read your dog's body language and how to introduce new dogs to your home, about how to foster dogs properly versus improperly and how the shelter and rescue world works. And I've learned a ton about health issues and my dogs have had such various and often mysterious health issues and having to develop a more maybe alternative based mindset for approaching health and and health issues in our dogs and myself, quite frankly. But the one thing I will admit that I don't know a ton about is training. Like our dogs have manners in the house. But we've never been great about training. We haven't done a lot of formal training classes. And I know next to nothing about like the dog sports world or the competitive dog sport training world. And that's why I'm so excited about today's guest, Melissa Stagnaro, because over the last 20 years, she's done almost every dog sport that there is to do with her dogs. But she really loves the sport of search and rescue. And I was like, what? There's like a sport of this? And yes, there is. And you're going to learn that the sport of search and rescue is also called RH by those who are in the know. And Melissa is going to explain to us why. But just so you know, if you hear her refer to RH, she's referring to the sport of search and rescue. Melissa is going to share with us about her background. She had very interesting and unusual experiences with dogs when she was growing up. So I think you'll find that very interesting. 
And she's going to tell us about all the different dog sports that she's done over the years and some great tips for getting your dog started in a dog sport and how to pick the dog sport that's best for you and your dog. And Melissa's going to tell us all about the sport of canine search and rescue and the history of it. What are the different aspects? What do you have to train for? And this episode is actually super special to me because for the first time, I actually got to go out and kind of do some field reporting and I got to observe a mock trial of the canine search and rescue sport. And I got to talk to everyone and and meet all the different dog handlers and dog owners and really see this in action and see what it was all about. And Melissa gives some really amazing tips on how to break some of this down. How do you even start training your dog to do something like this? How often do you train? What should these training sessions look like? I just found it all so fascinating because I'm such a newbie that I just wouldn't even know where to start. So I really appreciate Melissa's insight and it really does seem doable if you're someone like me who's completely new to this whole world. So let's get started. I'm so excited for you to meet Melissa Stagnaro. So we are here today with Melissa Stagnaro. Melissa, how are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Yes, thank you for being here. I have so much I want to talk to you about. Uh, I always love to start out by asking about your childhood experiences with dogs. Did you grow up with dogs? What did that look like for you? When I was in high school, my mother was influenced by the 101 Dalmatian movie (laughs) and purchased a poorly bred Dalmatian. Oh, my. Yep. And it uh, actually was on the, the dangerous dog list for the state. Oh, my. It was, it was, uh, it was an interesting experience. So I, I did remember going to dog obedience classes with that dog. Um, I think we only went a couple times. Like I said, <laughs> it, was, uh, it, it wasn't the ideal situation for the dog and you know, if you had, uh, if it hurt every time you urinated, you'd probably be a little grumpy too. So, uh, just just a cautionary tale for the the popular breeds from movies or TV. So, so needless to say, that was not the dog that made you fall in love with dogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, he and I had fun, but yeah, you know, he also he also bit some people and. <laughs> Wow, I have never heard that kind of story before. <laughs> so, when did uh, dogs d- did you you know move out on your own and decide to get a dog? How how did that all come about? Um, yeah, so when I was a bit older, I was doing search and rescue, but not with the dogs. I was very much into orienteering, you know, the the map reading and statistics and looking at uh, probability. You know, there's there's some great resources trying to look at terrain as well as who the lost person is. So, you know, a, a mushroom hunter or a photographer would probably have a different lost profile than a small child. Oh, that's very interesting. So we, we take all those things into account and try to predict where the, the likeliest spot to find the lost person is, and we would deploy, you know, certain resources, whether they're uh, what they usually call ground pounders, those are the people with without a dog, or the dogs, or, you know, nowadays with drones. Uh, this, my, my time was well before drones, but <laughs> looking at the probability. So that's how I 
we've got into search and rescue a bit, but that's our team. They had they had a dog program, and I went to some of the classes just to watch. Unfortunately, it wasn't the best training. Now, I looking back now, I can evaluate it, but I, I was not overly impressed with what I saw. And I thought that was typical because that was my first exposure. So that kind of put me off for for a bit. But, you know, I kind of continued to be interested in it. I had a, a, a coon hound for a while that I enjoyed doing some trailing. I, I thought that I wanted a bloodhound. You know, this kind of like childhood dream of, you know, <laughs> this big bloodhound and I took care of one of the the SAR members, Bloodhound, for for a weekend, and that put me off Bloodhounds. <laughs> um, the, the saliva is is quite something. <laughs> so, I found a, a dry mouth coonhound actually in rescue, and I was working with her and had some fun with that. And then and then I took a took a quite a long break. And had had different breeds, and more recently, I've been dipping my toe back into the search and rescue, but in the sport realm with a Dutch Shepherd, who such a great dog for me. He did so many things that then I almost ran out of sports to do with him. <laughs> I was looking in a dog sport magazine, and I saw a reference to an RH titling program. And I looked it all up and found out that he already knew about 80% of the activities and trained him up on the other little bit, found a trial, and then I was off and trialing in RH. And so what are all the different types of sports that you have done over the years? Uh, Well, so my first sport was competitive obedience. And and I, I really enjoy that. It's it's not as popular as it once was. And then I've dabbled in almost all of them. Uh, agility, rally, confirmation, dock jumping, the, the sport nose work, tracking, the protection sport of Mondio ring, protection sport of French ring, protection sport of PSA. I did some what's now called IGP other than the protection phase, and uh, I'm getting into into some bird dog work with my young dog, so that's that's a new one for me. So I will admit I have never done any kind of sports with my dogs, and it always looks a little bit like intimidating to me. Do you have any tips for somebody who's like, well, this looks kind of interesting, but I don't know what I'm getting myself into? So my first tip. In all the sports I've ever done, they are almost always appreciative of people coming and watching and being interested. Now, don't ask an exhibitor or don't ask a judge, oh, why did you do this? What is this exercise right when they're getting ready to perform or getting ready to judge? You're probably not going to get the best answer there. But Love people to be interested in the activity. You know, Aaron, everybody loves to talk about their dogs. <laughs> everybody also loves to talk about their dog sport and why why it's a really great dog sport. 
So I would strongly encourage any of your listeners who are interested, go to a trial. If you really want to have a leg up, read the rule book first. Almost all of the rule books are a little bit hard to get through on the first read. But if you read it once and then you go and you're watching and then you can read it again and kind of get a sense. And the best is if you have a little bit of experience reading the book and watching, you're able to ask really intelligent questions. And folks, even professional dog trainers that usually charge, you know, 250 or more dollars an hour will sit with you for free and answer all these questions and give you advice about how to get your dog started because they're enamored by your interest and your ability to ask thoughtful questions. Oh, I love that. And the the, the next step from that is almost always there's a great need for volunteers. Now, maybe they'll ask you to make sure the, the judge has water, you know, not do anything, you know, really technical, but almost all the time. They love volunteers. They'll put you to work and you will get to see different dog teams doing the same routine, or you'll get to see the beginner and the advanced routine. And you'll be able to really visualize what it would be like. And, and, you know, hang out on the sidelines or in the parking lot and see if this sort of activity is for you. I, I've had dogs in the past that uh, would have probably been good flyball dogs, but I personally don't like barking. <laughs> so you might not know that there's a lot of barking in flyball unless you go. You know, so you don't want to put in all this time and effort and get the equipment and be like, woohoo, fly ball. And you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I really don't like barking. <laughs> so I would definitely encourage all of your listeners to go and watch and go and volunteer. You will get some great advice. You'll get great insight. People will be warm and friendly or like with when I went to my first flyball competition, I'll be like, well, these are some awesome people, awesome dogs, but this is not the sport for me. That is a really good tip. <laughs> Have you ever had any, um, I don't want to say horror stories, but like lessons you learned the hard way from doing this? Well, not a horror story, but I, I always think it's a funny story. The first time I ever competed, it was was in competitive obedience, and uh, the the beginner level is at that at that point was called novice. And there's an on leash healing part, and there's an off leash healing part, and some other skills. And 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 I go in, you know, first time, super friendly people. I ended up not really knowing my first competition was a, a regional championship, but you didn't have to qualify. So it was a really big competition. And I go in and the judge, very nice lady. And she says, you can't use that leash. <laughs> I go, I don't know. It's six feet. The, the rules said it, you know, had to be between four feet and six feet. And well, it was, um, it was what they kind of call like a traffic leash that it had a, a second loop closer oh. to the clip, which was not allowed. And 
I didn't know. Um, you know, so another exhibitor lent me her leash and, and we went through the routine and it was fine. But no, actually with that same dog, a uh, couple years later, we were competing and it was, it was a pretty warm day. It was an outdoor trial and the table steward had a table right outside the ring and I was not as clever of a handler that I would be now. <laughs> so, you know, the judge says, okay, well, leave your dog, go across the ring and then, and then recall your dog. So I recall, I went to the edge of the edge of the fence and my dog came and then went under the shade under the table. <laughs> so we actually got excused for the dog being like so-called out of control because she left the ring, even though she only went a foot and she was just hiding in the shade because it was a bit hot for her. <laughs> but uh, I would certainly have handled that differently today. <laughs> but, you know, I, I didn't train for a warm day and, and the, the lure of, of a shady spot. <laughs> So is there a good sport for a beginner to try for the first time? I would say there's so many dog sports. Um, it, AKC has many choices. There are tons of choices outside the AKC. I would say the most important thing is it's something that the human enjoys. Because you're going to be spending a lot of time and... If the dog really enjoys it, but you're not as enthusiastic or it's very difficult for you to get to training or get to the trials, your dog is going to feel that. Something that you enjoy, your dog will end up enjoying. Competitive obedience, not for everybody, but it's a great start because it's, you know, applicable for real life. You know, you want your dog to come to you. You want your dog to lay down. I I can't I can't even just pick one other than to say, really think about what your dog would enjoy. You know, before we started recording, we were talking a little bit about how dogs really love to use their nose. Um, There's some very instinctual dog sports like lure coursing for for sight hounds although they they also have other breeds and it's basically a plastic bag on a pulley system mimicking a rabbit and so the dog chases the the plastic bag around um another one of the more instinctual dog sports is barn hunt they'll have a a a rat in a cage so the rat is safe they'll hide it and the dog will hunt around and locate it. You know, dock jumping is another kind of instinctual dog sport. Assuming your dog enjoys water. <laughs> I was just laughing to myself because my dogs do not enjoy water. They don't even <laughs> like to look at the water. <laughs> right. So at least that those are three choices of, of the dog sports that if your dog kind of already has the tendency that way, you could get into it without too much training. You know, and then there's precision tracking at the highest level that it is really fun for a lot of people and takes a lot of hours. But I would I would think, yeah, the the, the sport that the human is interested in, 
you know, for the most part, it's going to be it's going to be a good choice to research first and maybe get started. So, are there any uh, skills or commands that you think that like every dog owner, regardless of whether they're competing or not, should should have a good uh, mastery of like the first one that came to my mind was like a recall, but I, I was just curious to get your thoughts on that. Well, I'm going to say one that you probably wouldn't think of, but uh, is eliminating on command. Oh, so it's super important for the sport dog because in almost all dog sports, if the dog eliminates during your time being judged, that's either a lot of points off or thank you for your entry money. You may, you may leave now. And so this would be either number one or number two. (laughs) Yes. Yes. But you know, for the days when it's super hot, super cold, super buggy, you're under the weather, you're late for work, you know, there's a million reasons why it's, it's great for the dog to eliminate when and where you direct them. That is a very interesting thing that I had never <laughs> thought about before, and I appreciate you saying that. <laughs> Recall is always nice for for some dogs, depending on the the level of of training interest and the the temperament. You can also be safe with like an emergency down. You know, if the dog is is roaming around the park and you're like, well, jeepers, the recall I could call, but the the dog might not come back. If you say down and the dog lays down right there, then you have to walk over and attach the leash, but you can still get a level of safety with an emergency down in place. Of course, more training is is always good. Um, for those who are interested in, in dog sports, something else that maybe you wouldn't think of, but the ability to take food treats or play in different settings. You know, some dogs, whether they're too excited or too nervous or, you know, whatever, they don't really want to eat and they don't want to play with you in different settings. I've definitely seen that. Yeah. Yeah. But even for someone who's not interested in competing, you know, wouldn't it be nicer to go to the vets and you think the the veterinarian is a place to just eat hot dogs Right. versus if you're too nervous to eat, then it's just stress with, with no positivity. So if any of your listeners have a dog that, you know, won't eat or won't play in certain situations, that's not, oh, it's just the dog. That's just where they are today. That's definitely something that can be turned around and can be quite positive for the dog overall, especially for sports. But like I said, for real life situations, um, you know, I have a, a young bird dog now and some of my bird dog friends, oh, my dog won't eat when we're out traveling. And they're such high energy dogs and they run and they run and they run and they don't eat. And then they look like like a, a, a bag of bones. So it's impacting their health if they won't eat in different situations. And, 
you know, it's a stress reliever too to play, you know, play tug, play fetch, play catch. So those would be, those would be other skills that maybe someone wouldn't think of, but that can really go quite far to help with the harmony of you and your dog. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. That makes a lot of sense. So I know you are primarily here to talk about the sport of search and rescue, and you are vice president of the American Rittenhund Sport Association. Did I say that right? You said that as well as I would in my poor German. (laughs) Yes. So when you were speaking about RH, that means Rittenhund? Yes, yes. So we just, we don't do the, the garbled German, except when we're, <laughs> we're being formal. And so we ba- it basically is search and rescue for dogs, but it's a sport version. So they're not actually qualified to go out and, and find someone um, with like a professional team, but it's a sport using all of those same kinds of skills. Am I explaining that right? Definitely. So there's three sport levels. And it's just what you said. It's it's just a sport. You were not authorized to call yourself a search and rescue, you know, deployable certified team. There is a fourth level called Mission Ready, and that is for for folks who want to be deployed. Um, the RH folks that I have interacted with in this country, about a quarter of them are also on search and rescue teams. And so they do the sport to have more training opportunities, but their dog actually is certified, but not under this program. Got it. And so this is something that originates in Germany, right? So it started as part of, um, in, in Armenia in 1989, I believe there was a very bad earthquake and folks came from all over, both nursing type, paramedic type, search and rescue, you know, just volunteers without dogs, folks with dogs. So many people came to this site with the best of intentions to try to help. But at that time, there weren't really good international standards of search disaster assistance. And for the search and rescue dogs, it it was hard to determine just by somebody's say-so. Is your dog an advanced dog? Is it more of a beginner dog? So the, the FCI, which is the International Dog Federation, worked with a newly formed international rescue dog organization to come up with standards. And I... I actually don't know why why the, the German name got on there, except it, it's kind of it, in the international competition rules. It's often grouped with other utility work, so useful work that dogs do. And, you know, the sport that used to be called Schutzen, you know, that's a German word. And then it was IPO, which is an acronym for a German word, and IGP, which is an acronym for a German word. But... Um, no, I don't know that. The next time I, <laughs> next time I ask somebody who might know, I'll, I'll try to find out why it's with the German name. <laughs> so I have heard of Schutzend before. And so I always associate it. And I think most 
people commonly associate it with when you see someone wearing like the bite sleeve and the dog is going after the bite sleeve. Although there are other elements that make up that whole sport, but that's kind of like the common thing that you see. And you're saying it's not actually called Shitsund anymore. So I guess I should call it something else. <laughs> yeah, so it's called IGP now uh, under whatever name it, it's a three phase activity there's a tracking phase, an obedience phase, and a protection phase. And and yes, usually the glamour and the photos and and all the the sexy videos is is generally the protection phase. The tracking I find really cool, but it's you know it's it's a dog walking slowly and deliberately with its nose down with a handler ten meters away. So maybe doesn't make for for the best footage. <laughs> And so with the RH work that you do, the search and rescue sport work, it has some of the same similar type elements, right? There's There can be tracking, and then there's also the searching where they actually are going to find a person, and then there's like an obedience phase. And I knew this because I got to come out and see you guys. <laughs> yep, definitely. So for RH, there, there's no bite work. So just to, to let everybody know... Um, there is, there's two phases. There's an obedience dexterity phase, and it includes normal dog things like healing, sit, stand down, retrieve, and what it's called dexterity, running through a tunnel, crossing a horizontal ladder. We don't call it agility because all of the obstacles are done with control. Whereas in competitive agility, you want the dog to move fast and it's, you know, timed event. This, we want to show a lot of control. Most of the dexterity obstacles are mimicking what you might see on a rubble pile. Or perhaps in the woods, if there's a lot of downed trees, for instance, and the dog has to climb over and, and test the footing to make sure it's safe to to traverse. Yes, I remember thinking that all of the obedience things were very like functional and purposeful. And one of the things that that struck me was just being able to pick your dog up and hand your dog over to someone else and that that's something that could have to happen and your dog needs to be able to be comfortable with that. For sure. Well, and in COVID times I had to take dogs to the veterinarian and I went to the door and I handed over the leash and the person took it. And, um, you know, I'm sure they were in some instances lifted onto a table when I had a dog that was, had an injury. I had to carry it up and down the stairs in my home for a few months and the dog was totally calm about it because we had worked on on the carry so it wasn't adding any stress to the you know to being rehabilitated for for an injury it's mimicking being on a rubble pile let's say you and I are on the same team and if unfortunate circumstances I'm injured and my dog is injured my dog needs to be comfortable with you carrying him off the pile and taking him to the vet or, you know, just putting him in a crate to rest or, or whatnot. But it definitely is a great skill for, for any dog. Yeah. Like, 
you know, I had, you know, a little puppy and he could walk up the stairs, but when he was very little, going down the stairs with an uncoordinated legs and, and, you know, not carpeted, it wasn't going to be safe. So I would carry him down and then it's a good thing. And even, I, I don't recall who the dogs were out when you came, but even folks with very large dogs and maybe smaller women, you can still do a lot of foundation to prepare your dog to be comfortable in that situation, even if you're not physically able to carry them. I remember thinking that that was a, you know, a skill that I had never thought about before that, that we should probably have our dogs more comfortable with just because you just never know. And like you said, injuries and and COVID times, all of those things uh, have definitely made me think about that too. And one of the other things that I thought was so interesting. So I remember seeing there was the dog would be walking through like a group of people and then walking through a group of people and other dogs and, you know, trying to make sure that the dog be, you know, being tested wasn't distracted by, you know, the people milling around, the other dogs being around. And then there was also a gunshot, uh, too, which I remember thinking, oh, God, my dog Penny would fail immediately because she's so reactive to, to any kind of, of loud noises like that. And then, and then while all that's kind of going on and the dog is being run through that, there's another dog down at the other end of the field who's just kind of got to sit in a downstay and just watch all of this and not react to it. And I just thought that was really fascinating to watch, too. Yeah, I mean, I I don't want your listeners to be overwhelmed. You know, it's a kind of like, how do you eat the elephant? You know, one bite at a time. But yeah, so we want, even for the beginner level, we want dogs that are very stable, environmentally stable, socially stable, and under control. That's why we have an exercise where they have to heal around uh, a male and female dog, heal around other people heal while there's a gunshot and also the the partner dog is doing a downstay while the other dog is doing all the the active work it was it was very neat to to be able to see all this and and again to think about how this would be necessary in you know a real world application and and i i just it, maybe it's a very German thing that these are all very like functional, you know, <laughs> like purposeful functional uh, activities. And, and I just, I appreciate it. Like, I felt like it was like very thoughtful, like, you know, the different things that had to be done. And, and I just, I thought that was very cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, and you know, I've had friends of mine who aren't interested in competing for RH, but they'll come out on our training days and they'll tell me, Oh, it was so great to be out there with all the gunfire because then 4th of July, when my neighbors were lighting off fireworks, it was just kind of (laughs) ho-hum. My poor Penny has never found it ho-hum, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) And then, so I also got to see some tracking. And like you said, that might not be like the most exciting thing to watch a video of, but it was very cool to kind of see uh, how it, you know, how it happened and how like quickly the dogs follow the, the, the trail, the scent trail. Tracking is, is my favorite. I, I've had the opportunity to do all four types of scent work 
and tracking is the most fascinating and it, it, it tells the story of the dog reading time. You know, when I've been privileged to walk behind a good dog, whether it's my dog or I'm just walking along with with another really experienced tracking dog, you can see just the little little changes of behavior. And we'll go then ask the track layer, well, what happened, you know, right over here? Oh, I tripped. Oh, my shoe fell off. Or, oh, you know, my phone was ringing and I stopped and I, I reached into my pocket. These little small things that the dog was able to say, hey, something different ha happened here. It wasn't just the person walking from point A to point B. There was some occurrence. So I think tracking is super fun. And for those who enjoy it, it can be extremely relaxing. I don't think we touched on it yet, but you briefly mentioned that there's four different scent options for competitive RH. Um, tracking is one, definitely. Uh, man trailing is a second. It, it's similar to tracking, but a bit different. Wilderness search, so it's somebody lost in the woods. And rubble, which is also called urban disaster. So someone, you know, in a in a collapsed building. And of the four, tracking is the one that you can do the majority of the training, even for the highest levels, by yourself, on your own schedule, when it works out for you. So that's one big ad advantage for tracking and uh, makes me sound like I have dogs who are injured all the time. But <laughs> when I've had a, an injured dog and the vet has said, oh, you know, it can only be, you know, a 10 minute, very slow walk around the block. That's the only physical activity they can do. Well, uh, my, my dogs know how to heal so they can walk at a very slow pace in heel position, but it's maybe not quite so interesting. But setting up a track for them where they could track for 10 minutes, which is going to be very slow, very deliberate, so they're not harming their their physical therapy, and they're getting a lot of mental stimulation when they're you know, on their crate rest from their injury. So tracking can be another another fun one for for older dogs, people who are really busy and it's it's hard to make it out to a training club because once you figure out a program you want to work, you can do the majority of it all by yourself. So how do you even start? Like how do you start trying to teach your dog the skill? So there's there's lots of ways to teach tracking. Um, there's usually two kind of camps. The one that is the most popular uses a lot of food drops. So uh, possibly in every single footstep, uh, possibly a bit more, but there's, there's bits of food for the dog to follow and eat along the way. And then as, as the dog gets better, the gaps between food increases. And another way that's, that's very similar, but instead of leaving food on the ground, you leave small items for the dog to find. 
for instance, uh, maybe the bottle cap, you know, of a beer or, or could be a button, you know, something very small like that, that as you know, one person would leave a little bit of hot dog at every step and another person might leave, you know, a button or a bottle cap at every step. And so they're, they're similar. So the dog would find the item, the bottle cap, and you would feed them or play with them. Okay. And then they would find the next bottle cap and you would feed them or play with them and so on and so forth until that dog gets better and better. And then the distance between bottle caps increases very similar to, to the food drops, but we're just adding one other layer um, especially like our, our friends in Texas that have very terrible fire ants. So leaving little bits of hot dog for the dog to walk and find, the dog is probably going to end up with a nose full of fire ants. Right. <laughs> so that's not really conducive to making them want to go tracking. So sometimes they'll, they'll either leave food in little containers or they'll do something similar to what I mentioned, that they're leaving, you know, buttons or bottle caps. And then when the dog finds it, they walk over and give them food from their hand. So there's no issue with the fire ants. <laughs> and then I also got to see the live search. And so this was where one of the volunteers went and hid in woods and the dogs would have to go and find the person. And now if, uh, I think remind me right. They smell some an item of that person, and then are released to go find the person. Is that correct? So for for the area search, which is also called live find wilderness search, the dog is expected to find and alert to any living person. Okay. Um, so in a for real search scenario. Right, we're looking for for grandma that has wandered away, but there's also hikers in the area. The the well trained dog will alert to the hikers and then you'll say, Dog, good job. Maybe you'll ask the hikers, Hey, have you seen a little old lady? And then you'll send them on. So the the area search dog is not scent specific. They're looking for, for any human being in your sector. Okay, okay. Now in the competition, there's only going to be a set number depending on your level, but, um, you know, uh, but for a man trailing dog, it's some elements of, of tracking, but it's also scent specific. So we would get, you know, your headband and then, the dog would be given your headband to smell and would search just for you. Okay. And it would do that with um, the scent you would have left on the ground, as well as the scent that's swirling in the air. Now, what was completely shocking to me was how fast they find the person. <laughs> I mean, I think it had to have been under a minute. I mean, I was just like, oh, wow. <laughs> It was so fast. <laughs> well, people are kind of smelly. <laughs> <laughs> I was, I mean, that really blew me away. I was like, wow, they are fast. <laughs> for the competition, there is a, there is a time limit for, for the area search dogs. 
well, for, for all the phases, but, you know, we, we do want dogs working efficiently. So it's certainly not the case that they need to run. And even a dog that might seem a bit slower, they just need to be working efficiently, uh, using the wind to their advantage. If they've searched in this little area and they've not found it, the dog needs to move on and search some other area because we do want to find folks as fast as possible, right. you know, and an actual, actual search and rescue deployments sometimes, you know, 10, 30 minutes can be, can be a big difference in the outcome. And so I actually got to come out and watch you guys. It was on like the craziest weather day ever <laughs> at the end of March. <laughs> like there was wind, there was rain, there was snow, there was hail. <laughs> and, uh, and so I actually got to witness a mock trial. And so you guys were all preparing for an actual trial competition that was going to be coming up in a few weeks. And so you were acting as the judge and all the different, um, putting the different dogs through all the exercises. I thought you were a very fair judge. <laughs> you, uh, you know, you, um, and you waited until they were done and then you would kind of give them pointers or reminders of the rules about, you know, for reminding for the competition. So this was a lot of, fun for me to watch. And I really appreciate uh, everybody who was very welcoming to me and answered all my questions. And I, I had a, gr a great time uh, coming out and see you once um, I like thawed out. <laughs> but no, it was it was really great. And so then you guys actually had your trial competition in April. And so I have been wondering, how did that go? It went great. We had quite a few exhibitors. Um, most were at the beginner level. We had we had one take on the intermediate level. We had folks doing the the precision tracking that you saw with the the slow, deliberate, really precise movement. We had a lot of the dogs doing the wilderness searching. Everyone did quite well. Uh, not everybody passed. The the folks that did not pass one it was. Well, it's always due to not enough training, but, um, you know, one, the, the handler made a few, made a few errors in how to best handle his dog. And the other, you know, the, the team was, was a little rusty from, from the times that they had been training before, but, uh, all the dogs showed well, we had, we had a nice mix of different breeds and uh, we were lucky enough, we, we had a, a judge come in from Belgium, and he stayed about a week, and so he actually gave a seminar. So our trial was Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and he gave a, sa a seminar um, Monday and Tuesday, which we had a really nice turnout for as well, and he gave us a, a, a lot of tips for our next trial, and... Uh, for you and any of the listeners, we are planning a, a, a fall trial in the Virginia area. So we definitely love folks to come out. And for anybody who is thinking, well, maybe I like to do this, definitely come out, train with us. And if you're, if you're close to being ready for fall, we'll definitely help you get ready for fall. And if it's more like 
you'd be ready in about two years because you have a young dog or an inexperienced dog to keep training with us and uh, and we'll be continuing to hold trials. We have folks different spots in the U.S. We are heavy in the mid-Atlantic right now, but uh, we do have a, a seminar coming up in Washington State. So, And, and we have pockets of, of RH enthusiasts all over the U.S. Well, I'm very excited to hear everybody did so well. And I, I also had to laugh a little when you said that it all a, a variety of breeds, because I think one of the questions I asked you the first time we chatted was, is this all German shepherds? And you were like, no, there are actually pit bulls there. And there were. <laughs> <laughs> well, and actually, you'll, you'll, be, you'll be pleasantly heartened to know that uh, the high in trial for trial one and the high in trial for trial two were both American pit bull terriers. Oh, wonderful. They beat out the Malinois and <laughs> everyone else. So. That's wonderful. Is that the ones that I met? It's like yeah. a, a mother and daughter um, pit bull. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's wonderful. Well, congratulations to them. <laughs> so one of the other things that really stood out to me because I'm so inexperienced in, in the dog sport world was, first of all, everybody has like quite a setup in their car <laughs> because their dogs spend a lot of downtime in, in the car. And so so that was just, I don't know, that's like kind of struck me as interesting. And, and I actually thought it was uh, interesting. Also, there were some people who were there that day. I think the one guy, I think his name was Brian. And then there was the, the, um, the girl who was, who was hiding in the woods and they were telling me that their dogs, you know, were still in training and weren't ready to, to be competitive yet, but they still bring their dogs and let their dogs hang out in the car. And I, at first I kind of was like, Oh, that's interesting. But then I was realizing that, it's all part of the training and it's all part of getting your dog used to, you know, the sights and the sounds and having the downtime and even hearing like the, the gunshot for instance. And, and I, I just uh, was, was just realizing, you know, how sometimes we think training is like being like a very active thing, but sometimes it's almost like a, a passive thing too. And just getting your dog used to being around things. And so for me, who was a, a total newbie to all this, those were just some of the other uh, things that, that struck me. Erin, uh, you, you bring up a great point, and I, I, I would have said it earlier, but it, it's great to have the, the, the new eyeballs on the situation. You know, when I'm helping some folks, uh, you know, I, I'm helping a woman right now who's just getting into competitive sport detection, and right, I had to tell her, when you go to the trials, yeah, your dog is only searching for three minutes, but you're going to be there all day. Right. <laughs> so bring a chair, bring water, bring a fan for the dog, depending on, on the time of year, bring lunch, because there's a lot of waiting. Yeah. So the two folks that you mentioned who were not participating in the mock trial, but are training RH, right, they'll bring their dogs out and they'll do, you know, maybe a little healing, maybe a little just ball play, um, practicing the skills you know, that I mentioned earlier, come out empty and then we're going to maybe do a little work. Um, can you, can, will you take food? Will you play when there's another dog healing over there or when there's some gunfire or, or whatnot? Yeah. The, the, the search and rescue training 
as well as some of the other dog sports, it, it's different than, you know, Tuesday at 7 p.m. I go to the one hour agility class. Right. You know, this is more of four hour, eight hour, <laughs> you know, that you're there. We're working or working dogs as the dogs get more advanced. You know, we need to set up more difficult challenges for them. And, and yeah, the dogs also need to realize they need to be in the car. And maybe some of them barked or whined a little bit, but they also can't be just barking, barking or spinning, spinning. Because then when it's their turn, they're going to be tired. Yeah, they'll be exhausted. So it's all, it's all, it's all, it's all training. And uh, what does, so, okay, what does your training schedule look like? Like, are you doing things every day, you know, every week? Like, what what does that look like for you? Uh, I am doing things every day, but (laughs) I don't want to, I don't want to make folks think that, that, that one would have to do this many sessions. Well, you do it because you're you're loving it, right? I mean, you love you love doing right. it. Right. <laughs> yep. Um, so I have a young dog now. He generally gets three training sessions a day. Um, sometimes on the weekends when we're doing bigger, more complicated things that take a lot of resources, it might just be in it might just be one session a day. I have an older dog that is nearly retired, but he still loves to dabble. So I'm doing some sport detection with him daily. And then I'll usually do some trick training just to engage his brain. So he usually gets two very short sessions a day. And my my young dog usually gets three sessions a day. But um, I also choose very high drive dogs that are very kind of demanding and pushing, pushy and love to train. So for more of your, your average middle, middle drive dog, four sessions a week will get you pretty far. As I mentioned, tracking, you can do all by yourself. The other sorts, sort of search work, you do need a friend. So when I say four sessions a week, you know, that's definitely not necessarily searching for people four days a week you know we try to do that once once a week for sure and if you can coordinate it with your friends maybe twice a week Um, but there's so many other skills I mean you saw all the obedience certainly but there's aspects to the search work that we can train by ourselves for instance uh, when we're searching in the woods I would like my dog to search this little area on the left and then I'd like them to come back and search this area on the right and come back. So, you know, I like to do that with, uh, with containers of food. So I send the dog to the left, they eat the food. I call them back. I send them to the right. They eat that container of food. So there's activities like that, that you can do by yourself in the park, in your backyard, whatever, that then when you go to your weekly training day that you can actually have folks hiding in the woods for you. Your dog already has some comprehension of go to the left, go to the right. I like that. 
I like how you break these things down because like you said, like <laughs> one bite at a time, because yeah, I feel like that is, you know, something that it's kind of like, well, where do you start? But once you realize where to start, you realize like, okay, there's, you know, there's a method here. I really like, you know, hearing how you, how you think about these and approach this and break it down like that. Well, and it might help some of your listeners, you know, I have a very young dog. So one of the things I'm working on with him is, again, as I mentioned, so you have to eliminate before we start, even if it's a big, busy park and there's squirrels and there's dogs and there's all sorts of excitement. No, we have to do this first. And then, you know, maybe I'm going to ask him for three steps of healing or a six inch retrieve. And then we're done. Then we play, we go explore the park, we, we do whatever, you know. So I'm, I'm, I'm demanding that you work, but it's, it's going to be very short bursts. And so that, in my mind, would totally count as one valid session. Right. It, you know, at, at the end, it's, it's taking two minutes, but I'm putting control about how he exits the car, where he empties, and I'm saying you have to do a little work. So things like that, you know, that can, I don't know, probably some of your listeners have had the experience that you teach, you teach your dog some, some cool trick. And then, and then you want to show off when the friends or the family come over. What? why won't the dog do it? (laughs) Because you haven't had them do it in other settings. Right. You know, so there's so many variations that you can change to make your dog be more reliable. You know, everybody's dog is, is good around dinner time in the kitchen, <laughs> <laughs> but taking that skill set and, and having it, you know, at, at a, at a park or something is, is something else. So with your new dog, your young guy, I saw him rolling around on the bed there in the background. Um, <laughs> so how long will you train with him before you think, he's ready to do any kind of competitive work? Is it like six months? Is it a year? Is it two years? So I'm doing bird work with him as well as um, man trailing with him. So the bird work, the group that I train with and test with, they have a, a puppy test that has to be taken when the dog is a puppy. And so he has already taken that. Oh, wow. Um, and he, he did quite well. So the the adult dog test, as well as the man trailing, we probably won't be ready for either for two to four years. So I have all different components of what the end goal would take us. Uh, but it's going to be quite a few years before he's ready to do any of the, the adult dog work. I admire how much time and, you know, dedication and effort and energy goes into all this. And, and what I really loved seeing, I guess, the most was just the, like, the bond. Like, you could see, like, the dog is looking to the owner for direction. And you can really see, you know, this bond between the, the owner and the dog. And I think that's really what all of this is all about. And, of course, when you have a high-drive dog, too, they need an outlet for all of this. (laughs) But, um, you know, that's why I always think, uh, you know, most families who are just average dog owners are great with going and just, 
getting a dog from a shelter that's, you know, three, four, five years old instead of, you know, buying a German Shepherd puppy from a breeder, you know, because most, um, you know, average dog owners might not know what to do with all of that energy. But um, this was, uh, it was really great to to see that. And I, I, I know how much time and effort goes into all that. And, you know, it's just, it's, a, it's, it's cool to, to see it all in action. Well, thank you. It was, it was great for you to come out and, you know, if you spreading the word and, and any of your listeners, you know, if it's piqued their interest, we have some, some resources on our, on our website and our Facebook page. And, and for those who are, are in the greater DC area, you know, We'd love to have you come out and see if this uh, activity works for you. Yeah, so we'll definitely have links to everything in the show notes so that people can find you. And yes, it would be wonderful to see some some new faces and, and familiar faces uh, again. Yeah, maybe you can come out to our fall trial. Yes, yes, I want to. I would love to. I'd love to see it all again. <laughs> and I'll, I'll tell you the date when it's set, but uh, that'll be fun. And and you know we always welcome the public to the trials it, it's it's a little bit similar to training in that even though like the obedience routine is only about 8 minutes and even if i tell you oh we only have 5 people trialing today it's still all day <laughs> <laughs> So bring a chair, bring a snack. And be prepared for all kinds of weather. <laughs> yep. Well, Melissa, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much for talking to me. This episode is brought to you by the Hugs and Belly Rubs Dog Health Journal. One of the most stressful times for me as a dog mom has been when my dogs have been sick. I've had dogs with cancer, with allergies, with mystery illnesses that we haven't been able to get a diagnosis for yet. With the Dog Health Journal, you can schedule your dog's daily meals, medications, supplements, track their appetite, water intake, and even poops. You can record their daily activities and note any changes in their physical appearance, such as lumps and bumps, or their routine. Since our dogs can't talk, it's our job as pet parents to listen to what they're telling us through their behavior and body language. With the Dog Health Journal, you can keep all the information you need to let your veterinarian know all in one place. With the Dog Health Journal bundle, you get your daily pages, you get your vet visit pages, you get a free 23-page ebook of the 12 changes in your dog to never ignore. And you also get tons of dog mom life hacks and general tips for keeping your dog as healthy as possible. So make sure you check the link in the show notes to hugsandbellyrubs.com for the Dog Health Journal. Your dog and your vet will thank you. Oh my goodness, I am so grateful to Melissa for sharing all of this amazing information with us. You know, for the last couple months, I found myself saying on a couple different occasions, you know, dogs are like a nose on four legs. And somebody was like, oh, I really like that. Where, where did you hear that? What is that a quote from? And I was like, oh, I must have read it somewhere or heard it somewhere. I, I wasn't sure. Well, when I was preparing my notes for my interview with Melissa, when we had met a few months back, I realized she had said it. And I I had literally written in my notes, a dog is like a nose on four legs. And I had like circled it and starred it. And when Melissa and I hopped on the interview, I told her, I hope you know that 
this quote really made an impact on me. And it is something I, I have found myself saying on several occasions, especially to people who might be new to dogs, that a dog is like a nose on four legs. And one of the best things that we can do for our dogs is to give them an opportunity and an exercise to sniff. Because where we are seeing the world and taking it in through our eyes and our hearing, our dogs are mostly relying on their sense of smell before anything else. And so we like to do a lot of different canine enrichment games with our dogs where we'll hide food and hide treats around the house or around the yard or even outside uh, in, a, in a park or on a trail or something because I knew they love having the opportunity to sniff. And so when Melissa was describing tracking and how one of the best things that you can do for a dog that, you know, maybe has an injuries on crate rest is set up a, a tracking exercise for them to do. I thought that was amazing. That was one of my favorite takeaways from everything that Melissa shared. And I really also loved hearing how she broke down what a training session can look like. Cause I think sometimes we, we hear these words in a training session and it sounds like this very big intimidating thing, but to, to hear, Oh, it could be going to the park and having them, you know, eliminate on, on your terms and, and, acting in a very controlled manner before then they get to have fun and, and exercise and be silly and play. Melissa made it all seem so much more doable. And so I hope learning about the canine search and rescue sport was exciting for you. I really loved watching these dogs get to really be in their element and show off what all that training's been for. I'll have a link in the show notes to the American Rittenhund Sport Association, and you can see all their training videos and information about the sport and all the different activities that the sport makes up. I'll have a link to their Facebook page where I know we'll be giving some love to the pit bulls who won at the trial competitions. And then also I'll be sharing on social media and in the show note links, all the photos that I took the day that I got to come out and see these dogs and their people at work. I had such a blast getting to do this and, and really learning more about dog sports and, and what all goes into it and, and really breaking it down and, and seeing that this is something that is attainable for most pet parents. And it's such a wonderful way to really build a bond and build a relationship with your dog. And really let your dog be a dog and get to do all those fun dog things. Thank you again so much to Melissa and everyone with the American Rittenton Sport Association who welcomed me, who answered all my questions. It was really just an honor to, to be a part of it, to get to see you guys all at work. I'm so grateful I had this opportunity. And that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. You can always find me at BelieveInDogPodcast.com, on Facebook at BelieveInDogPodcast, and on Instagram at BelieveInDogPodcast with underscores. If you liked this episode, I hope that you'll share it with one of your dog-loving friends. Until next time, this is Erin Scott, sending you hugs and belly rubs. The Believe in Dog podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.